I'm not I'm not a drill sergeant. But anyway, welcome back to the Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast. My name is Isaiah Leininger. Joining me today, as always, is my good friend Walker Howell. And today we are doing something we've never done on this show. We're doing a part two of an episode. We're very, very excited. But of course, since it's part two, that means you have to go back and listen to part one. Because otherwise you're going to be completely confused. And we're going to give you a quick recap of episode one, but it's going to be very, very brief. And so you have to, have to, have to go back and listen to part one of Holy Spirit and Miracles that we recorded with Lance Mosier. Uh, did I do a good job of commanding the audience there, as it says in our script? How about how 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 was that? All right. I, I think you did okay, um, even though you're not a drill sergeant. You did well enough. Perfect. We'll we'll, we'll go with that. Yeah, but again, uh, and that was Lance right there. And again, we're so happy to have Lance back on the show. Uh, episode one was phenomenal, and episode two is going to be phenomenal. Uh, so make sure that you check out Lance on his YouTube page, topicalbiblestudies.com as well as his books. He's written several books. And so we want to make sure that we plug those, including the one called Clouded by Motion, which is on this very subject, on the Holy Spirit and miracles. And so uh, this is that's exactly why we brought Lance onto the show for this topic. Uh, he's, he's put a lot of study into this. It's, he's put a lot of effort into this. And we're so thankful to have him, not only as a brother in Christ, but especially as a guest on this podcast. Uh, but yes, Episode one, very crucial that you listen to it. We talked about who is the Holy Spirit. We talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. We talked about what are miracles, uh, things that are done that are not able to be done naturally. They have to be done supernaturally. And we also talked about the fact that the purpose of miracles was to confirm a message. The purpose of miracles was to tell someone that, hey, what I'm saying is truly from God. I told you the episode one recap would be brief. So that leads us into our first question for episode two, which is, are there miracles today? And that's something that a lot of people wonder about. That's something a lot of people hear about. You know, some people claim to be able to still be able to perform miracles in this very day and age. But are they telling the truth? That's the question that we need to answer first for this episode. All right. I think that's a really good question and a question we should be asking, uh, not just assuming, not just listening to the religious leaders who claim one thing or another, but we ask this question and we discover the answer together in the scriptures. And that was a really good recap, by the way, Isaiah, on uh, episode one. I do want to uh, make one little amendment as we ask the question, what was the purpose of miracles? You are absolutely right that a purpose of miracles was to confirm the message and the messenger. In fact, I think that is the primary purpose for miracles. Uh, but we also note that there were other purposes uh, of miracles, and we don't have the time to explore all of them today. But briefly, of course, the person who was healed, one of the purposes of the healing miracle was to uh, provide a blessing to the recipient. Uh, just ask the, the lame man who was healed after 40 years of being laid at the gate, uh, I think he would have enjoyed a uh, blessing from that miracle. So one of the purposes was to bless the recipient. And another purpose was uh, Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came to bring the kingdom to earth, uh, to the citizens of earth and, and translate them into the kingdom of God. And one of the things that Jesus said 
to prepare the people for the kingdom was his miracles was binding the strong man before plundering his house. And uh, the particular miracle he had in mind when he said that was casting out demons. And so one of the things that Jesus did to uh, prepare the world for the kingdom was to show that he truly had the power of God. And it reminds me of uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He came to Jesus by night. We see that in verses 1 and 2. And he says to Jesus in John chapter 3, middle of verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus got it. He uh, understood that God exists and God can do things that I can't do. And now suddenly there is a man among us who can do things that only God can do. And so therefore this guy must be from God. And it pointed to the fact that Jesus knew what he was talking about, and he was teaching the truth. And Nicodemus uh, had his, un, uh, ha Jesus had Nicodemus's undivided attention once Nicodemus noticed these miracles. And we should too. Jesus came performing these miracles, uh, knowing that it would point to his deity. But it's also worth noting that Nicodemus seems somewhat surprised here. And that's because it seems that miracles were not being performed by every single person in the first century, not even every uh, single religious person or religious leader. Nicodemus was not focusing on any of the other rabbis or any of the Pharisees. He noticed this Jewish guy from Nazareth who was able to perform these miracles. Out of the 1,600 or so years of Bible history we have, we, we have only about 200 years on record of people performing miracles with their hands, that is, healing people, raising them from the dead, casting out demons. And that surprises a lot of people because uh, I used to be under the impression that you open the Bible and you're going to read about a miracle on every single page, but that's, that's not the case. Uh, now, I guess one exception might be the gift of prophecy, because whenever we do read Scripture, we're reading something that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But I guess what I'm talking about when I say work of power is something coming through the, the hands, the bodies of men and women to perform things, like you said, Isaiah, that humans cannot naturally do. And it does lead us to the question, are people doing that today? And I think one question that should be asked in addition to that is, do we still have the primary purpose for miracles? As Isaiah said, uh, when we read in the scriptures what the primary purpose of miracles is, it is to confirm the message. For instance, in Mark 16, verse 15, Jesus told the apostles to go and preach the gospel to all creation. And then verse 20 says that the Lord worked with them, confirming their message with the signs that followed. And Moses, in Exodus 3 and 4, when he was sent to the children of Israel, God sent him with miraculous gifts to prove that he was indeed a messenger come from God. And so the primary purpose was to confirm the message. The question is then, do we still need the message of God to be confirmed to us? And I think the answer begins to be given to us in John's account, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus had risen from the dead, and the previous narrative here is where Jesus appears to the apostles, including Thomas, 
And Thomas sees him and declares that Jesus is his Lord and his God. That's in verse 28. And in verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. All right, Isaiah and Walker, I'm going to assume something about you. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to assume you have not seen the risen Jesus with your own eyes, the way that Thomas and the apostles did on this occasion. Any correction forthcoming? That would be correct. Okay, very good. Uh, and I'm also going to assume that you believe in him, uh, you might even say, as much as Thomas did on this occasion. I would say so. All right. Well, Jesus calls you blessed. Now, I think in context, this is a little bit of a rebuke uh, because there, um, there were those who believed the women, for instance, uh, and ran to the tomb and uh, believed that Jesus had truly risen from the dead before they had seen him with, his own, with their own eyes. And Thomas, on the other hand, was doubtful in this chapter. Uh, but I think this blessing goes forward in time, too. I think Jesus was talking about those previous to Thomas, but this goes toward the 21st century too, because Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 1 that having not seen him, you still love him. And that would be us as well. We have not seen him with our own eyes, yet we still believe in him and we love him. These blessings come to us. But how is it that we can believe, and we could even argue that we believe just as much as Thomas did, who saw him with his own eyes? Well, John continues in the next verse, Verse 30, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is the blessing that was in mind here uh, toward those who believe having not seen. And how can we believe in the gospel without seeing Jesus with our own eyes? Now, that's not a rhetorical question. What do you think the answer is, Isaiah or Walker? How can we believe without seeing? Well, we have the uh, written record of the things that Jesus has done while on earth. And we have not only the scriptures to say that, but we have other historical uh, evidence that he was a real person, that he did walk the earth, walk the earth and do the things that the Bible said he did. Okay, so you're saying that you have faith in Jesus, even though you did not witness his raised body. What about this? Have you witnessed a miracle uh, that you can see in, in the Bible, like someone being raised from the dead or uh, someone healing a lame man or a leprous person? Have you witnessed anything like that? I have not, no. Yet you still believe. Correct. All right. And I do, too, because John, even writing toward the end of the first century, he expressed to his first and second century audiences that I have written down this account so that you may believe. But if you look toward the beginning of the account, belief was produced through witnessing of miracles. And if miracles were still prevalent, at least as prevalent as throughout the first century, as they were, um, if, if they were prevalent like they were throughout the first century, then John, I don't think, would have written something like this. Instead, he would say, just open your eyes and witness the miracles that are happening in front of you. But instead, he, he says, uh, put your eyes down toward the text and you will believe. It reminds me of something that Paul would say. Uh, even a few decades earlier 
in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, where he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Paul wrote to the Corinthian Christians uh, that he was a bit disappointed in them because they still depended on miracles in order for their faith to be upheld. And, and Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 12, that an adulterous and an evil generation seek after signs. Uh, he did not like the fact that people continuously asked for miracles and signs because he thought it should be sufficient for them once they've come to true belief in Jesus. They don't need signs anymore to believe in him. And so his signs were sufficient to point to his deity, to point to the fact that he was the son of God. And so I don't think this is conclusive at all, not conclusive by any means, but at least we're asking the question, do we even need miracles today? And uh, if the primary purpose was to produce faith in the hearer of the message, well, no, we don't need miracles for that to happen. Uh, case in point, us today, we've got, like you said, Isaiah, the external evidences, uh, whether it be historical, archaeological, scientific, but we also have the internal evidences through Scripture that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We can have full faith in him, and our faith is not lacking anything that the first century believers had, even though we have not witnessed miracles. Now, I think it's a great question to ask right after this is, well, if we don't have miracles today, where did they go? Obviously, mm. like you pointed out for us, Brother Lance, we see in Scripture, both uh, occasionally in the Old Testament and especially in the Gospels and the book of Acts, people performing miracles, raising people from the dead, healing the sick, healing the blind, get, you know, giving the deaf the ability to hear, these kinds of things. So if we hear about these, these kinds of miracles that happened in the Scriptures, where did they go? Either they didn't happen at all and there's never been these miraculous signs or they went somewhere. Uh, the, 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 the idea there, of course, is that, you know, either, either we believe that these signs happen, that these miracles happened, and they stopped happening for whatever reason, or they never happened at all. And obviously, if we're going to discredit the miracles of Christ or the miracles of the apostles, then we're discrediting everything with the gospel. So mm. that can't be the solution. So where did they go? Yeah, that's right. And I'm glad that you pointed that out because we truly believe in the miracles of the New Testament. So if you hear us say that we believe miracles are not happening in the 21st century, that is not at all saying that we believe miracles did not happen in the first century. I believe everything that the scriptures tell us happened actually happened historically. They're not fables. They're not, you know, uh, special stories wrapped up pretty so that we can think that's nice or anything like that. When Jesus raised the dead, when the apostles healed the sick, I believe that with all of my heart. But you're, you're asking a good question. If, if we're not seeing that with our own eyes today, where did they go? And I think a, a bit of a history lesson is worth noting. Uh, for instance, if you turn to Mark chapter 1, and I'm going to go through this lesson very quickly. I'm not going to read every scripture that might come to my mind or even every scripture that I reference. But in Mark chapter 1, we've got Jesus um, coming in on the scene. And one of the first things that he begins doing after his baptism is going around and casting out demons and healing everyone in the region. We see that especially toward the end of Mark chapter 1. 
but Mark chapter one is actually pretty lengthy compared to other chapters in the book. But uh, we see in verses 30, uh, 21 and following Jesus casting out demons. Uh, we see Peter's mother-in-law in verse 29 and follow, following verse 32, many people are healed. And then look at the very end of uh, Mark chapter one, we see in verse 45, uh, note verse uh, 41, then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing be cleansed. And so we see Jesus's, um, his uh, reputation going throughout the first century world. There is a miracle worker on the scene. If you were to imagine miraculous activities charted on a curve or a, or a chart itself, you would see this fluster of activity in, in during the time of Jesus's physical ministry. Prior to that, we have no record of anyone performing miracles, not even Jesus's forerunner, John the baptizer, is on record performing any miracle beyond his prophecies. And so when Jesus starts performing miracles, people flock to him saying there's something different with him. And then the first time we see someone other than Jesus perform miracles is in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 12 for the first time. And he tells them in Matthew 10 and verse 7, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you have received and freely you give. And so he gives his apostles this ability and people flock to them. And then we see in the book of Luke, another 70 or so are given miraculous abilities to do the same thing. And then that kind of tapers off for a while. We don't see a, a lot of activity by the hands of the apostles or uh, other disciples until after Jesus raises from the dead. We see Jesus saying to the apostles in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5 that John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And he says to them in verse 8 that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so we're about to see another flurry of miraculous gifts in chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit does come upon these apostles, and he, that is the Holy Spirit, gives them power. That's the word Jesus used in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you shall receive power. And what we see in chapter 2 is a fulfillment of what Jesus just promised, that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so in chapter 2 and verse 4, they, and if you follow that pronoun, you realize that Luke here in Acts chapter 2 is not talking about general disciples or even the 120 who were previously assembled in the uh, previous chapter. No, this is now a new day where the apostles are gathered. And it says in verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so the apostles are baptized with the Holy Spirit. They're able to now speak in tongues, which is something I think we need to talk about soon enough. In the next chapter, we see this lame man at the gate called Beautiful, healed by Peter and John. And we see in chapter 5 and verse 12 that uh, through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done 
among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. So the apostles are named as the people performing miracles now that Jesus has ascended into heaven. And in the book of Acts, these are the only guys we see performing miracles until chapter 6. All right, um, so here is one thing that we can learn according to the book of Acts, is that one way that Jesus gave these men, after the resurrection, miraculous powers was through the baptism with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus said, You shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Chapter 2, verse 1, Pentecost had fully come. And then verse 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. And then in chapter 6 is the first time we see anyone other than the apostles and Jesus himself perform miracles in the book of Acts. And that is after these seven men are chosen to serve and, and take care of the widows, we see in um, verse 5 that uh, the, the people were chosen, Philip and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, uh, and we also see, oh, Stephen, I missed his name. Uh, but then we see at the end of verse 6, the apostles laying their hands on these men. And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen's the first person on record to perform miracles in the book of Acts other than Jesus and the apostles. And the next person we have on record is Philip himself, and that's chapter 8, Acts chapter 8. And uh, Philip, this is not the apostle Philip, but this is one of the seven guys chosen in chapter 6. And uh, we see him performing miracles in, let's see, all right, I'm looking at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he's, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. And we also see in, in verses 4 through 8 that Philip was performing miracles and casting out demons. And so what happened to Stephen and Philip in chapter 6 that might indicate gave them the miraculous abilities? Oh, no, I put them to sleep. Oh, you're good. Uh, just, uh, just a quick note for those at home. We are recording this virtually, so occasionally Walker and I will mute ourselves in the background so that uh, any, any noise that comes in through us won't interrupt uh, Brother Lance. But... And so sometimes it takes a little bit for us to unmute. But uh, to answer your question, Brother Lance, uh, even though these men, Stephen and Philip, were great people and great workers, great Christians, we don't see record of them being able to do any of these great signs or wonders until after that Acts chapter 6 passage that you read for us, where the apostles laid their hands on them. Absolutely. And it even says they had the Holy Spirit when they were chosen uh, to serve in this capacity. And so that is another thing that I wish we had the time to truly unpack. 
But just because the scriptures say you have the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you can actually perform signs. Another example, and we've already referenced him, is John the baptizer. When the angel came and told his father, Zechariah, that he would be born, the angel said that uh, he would drink no liquor and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Yet, we have no record. In fact, one person explicitly says in the New Testament that John performed no sign. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, yet he couldn't perform miraculous works with his hands. Same thing with Stephen, Philip, and the rest of these guys. We, they were chosen because they were living with the Holy Spirit. Yet, we don't have a record of them being able to perform miracles until after the apostles laid their hands on them, and we see that explicitly stated in chapter 8. Uh, we see in, all right, this is still uh, Philip in Samaria, and the apostles come down because, all right, let's see, verse 14, now the apostles were at Jerusalem. Uh, they, sorry, now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. That was verse 18. And so it explicitly says that this uh, miraculous ability of the Holy Spirit is given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. Uh, earlier, Peter had said in chapter 2 and verse 38 that if you repent and are baptized, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 5 verse 32, the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey God and so we can assume that God has fulfilled these promises since they've already been baptized. But now the apostles had to come physically. Philip, the servant, didn't have this authority. But uh, he was able to... Uh, so Philip, the servant, didn't have the ability to do this, but he had to call for the apostles to come and lay their hands on these people of Samaria so that they might receive this miraculous gift. Another time we see the baptism with the Holy Spirit is in Acts chapter 10. And that is when uh, the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and his household. And we're not going to read the whole passage, but I would direct anybody's attention to that passage. Read it on your own time, primarily the second half of Acts chapter 10. But the Holy Spirit falls on Gentile people as they hear the gospel. And the Gentiles are then, after they receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit, they're able to speak with tongues and magnify God. That's Acts 10, verse 46. And then afterward, they are commanded to be baptized in water. And so um, I go in, like, go, go de in depth at length in my book on this subject. Uh, so if you're looking for a deeper read, uh, let me know. I'll get you a copy of my book. But uh, I've come to the conclusion that the way... God gives miraculous gifts in the New Testament Christian age in the church is through two events, through the laying on of the apostles' hands and through the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And the baptism with the Holy Spirit happens only twice explicitly in the New Testament, and we have no reason to believe it still happens today. 
Now, I understand that if somebody was raised believing that every single person is supposed to have the baptism with the Holy Spirit, that might come as a shock. But read your New Testament. We see in the very beginning, John promising that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that's a future promise. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is still promising it in the future. So it hasn't happened yet. Finally, it happens in Acts chapter 2, but we don't see it happen again until Acts chapter 10. And nearly 10 years have passed between Acts chapter 2 and Acts 10. Baptism with the Holy Spirit was not an everyday, every disciple experience. It only happens explicitly twice in the New Testament. And we, we see activity of the Holy Spirit all over the place, but specifically baptism with the Holy Spirit only happening those two times, Acts 2 and Acts 10. So what do you think, Isaiah? I think it's important for us when we look at those two passages uh, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10 to think about why the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was needed there. Yes. In Acts chapter 2, we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit coming down on the apostles in order for them to be able to go out and preach the first gospel sermon with the gifts of the, of the tongues that you mentioned earlier so that the, the, the message of the gospel could be communicated to, uh, nation, to people from all different nations. And then in Acts chapter 10, uh, of course, Acts chapter 10, we find the story of Cornelius, who is the first Gentile convert. And that's a big deal because up until that point, the only people who had been committed or uh, converted, excuse me, to Christianity had been Jews or proselytes, which were people who were not born Jewish, but still practiced the Jewish religion to the best of their ability, such as the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Yes. But we, when we get to Acts chapter 10, the people in Cornelius' home were baptized with the Holy Spirit because the apostles, especially Peter, needed to know that Gentiles were allowed to become Christians. That was something that they didn't understand. And in fact, they actually had to have basically a meeting about this later in the book of Acts in chapter 15. They call it the Jerusalem Council. They had to understand what had happened there in the household of Cornelius and why Gentiles were now becoming Christians. Because up until that point, and even after the baptism of Cornelius and his household, Jews did not want Gentiles to become Christians. They they were trying to keep that uh, they were trying to keep that message away from them because of their disdain for the Gentiles for anyone who was not a Jew. And so I think that's a very important detail when we talk about those two passages uh, yeah. and, we, and we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit because, like you mentioned, Brother Lance, it only happened twice and for very very specific circumstances. Thank you very much for bringing that up. Baptism with the Holy Spirit was not connected to salvation. In fact, if you read the scriptures about water baptism, it talks about how that's the moment that you are actually buried with Christ into his death, Romans 6, and that's the moment that your sins are washed away, Acts twenty-two sixteen, and that you are forgiven, Acts uh, 2, verse 38, and you are saved, 1 Peter three twenty-one and Mark sixteen sixteen. And it's interesting that when Cornelius and his family received the baptism with the Holy Spirit, Peter still commanded them to be baptized in water in the name of Jesus. And that's toward the end of Acts chapter 10. And so even though 
Cornelius and his family had received the baptism with the Holy Spirit, they still had not gone through the process of being converted to Christ, being buried with him in baptism. And uh, one of the things that I say in my book and and uh, in my public teachings about this is something that Isaiah was kind of pointing to was that baptism with the Holy Spirit served kind of as a green light. Because if you read Acts chapter 1, these guys, the apostles, they were waiting for the kingdom. In Mark 9 verse 1, Jesus said that the kingdom would come with power. And as soon as Jesus promised power by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, they realized, is this when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And, and they were told to just wait. Wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And then as soon as he falls on them, that's when they began speaking with tongues and preaching the gospel to the Jews. So it was a green light. It's now time to preach the kingdom among my people. And then uh, once it was time for the Gentiles to come into the kingdom, uh, they then Peter again witnessed the baptism with the Holy Spirit, but this time upon the Gentiles. And when the Jews in Acts chapter 11 require Peter to give an account for himself, why did you go and spend time with the Gentiles in their own home? In Acts chapter 11, verse 15, Peter is talking about his experience. He says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Well, that's worth noting, because in order to relate this to the apostles, Peter has to reach all the way back to the beginning. And like was mentioned, that was nearly 10 years ago. If baptism with the Holy Spirit was an everyday, every disciple experience, he could have said, well, the same thing that every disciple experiences. But no, he had to reach back to the beginning for them to understand what actually happened to Cornelius. Verse 16, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And so these people also viewed the baptism with the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles as a green light, as it's now time for these people to receive the gospel of the kingdom. And as we said, uh, there's no reason to think that people receive this now, because just as the primary purpose of miracles generally was to confirm the message, specifically the primary purpose of baptism with the Holy Spirit was to confirm it's time to preach the gospel to a new people group. And between the Jews and Gentiles, who's left? No one. I mean, we, we see people broken up into those two primary categories in Romans chapter 3 and verse 29, that God is the God of both the Jews and the Gentiles. And now that the Jews and Gentiles have received the baptism with the Holy Spirit, who's left? And so we have no reason for the baptism with the Holy Spirit today. And the other purpose, primary, uh, sorry, the other way the Holy Spirit miraculous gifts were given was through the laying on of the apostles' hands. And how many living apostles are left? Well, I would say none because this is you know, these men lived 2,000 years ago. That's right. Now, some might say, but we could still appoint apostles today, can't we? That's, I would say, another subject for another time. But the, the quick answer is no, because if, if we're going to be involved in appointing men, 
uh, to apostleship today, they have to meet the criteria that Peter and the Holy Spirit put forth in Acts chapter 1 for Matthias uh, and Barabbas, Barsabbas. Sorry, you know, I'm probably not the only person who gets those two names confused, but I'm sure they don't appreciate it. Uh, Barsabbas in Acts chapter 1, verse 23, and uh, and they had to be witnesses of Jesus's ministry and Jesus's resurrection, and they needed to be a witness of the ministry of the apostles so far as well. And I don't know anyone who can credibly claim that they've witnessed those things. And so, no, we can't appoint apostles to the ministry today either. And so if those are the two ways that God gave people miraculous gifts in the New Testament age, the church age, then we shouldn't be expecting God to be giving the gifts to people today if he's still doing that. All right. And another thing that we need to keep in mind as well is if people are claiming to be able to perform miracles today, then we need to be able to put it to the test. The scriptures are clear that we need to test the spirits because many false teachers have gone out into the world, 1 John 4 and verse 1. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 says, test all things and hold fast to that which is good because people in the New Testament, they claimed to perform miracles and even the apostles put them to the test. He, they said, do, do they truly perform the signs of an apostle? And Isaiah, what were some of the things that the apostles could perform with their hands? Well, you already mentioned in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John healed a man who had been lame from birth. He had been living on this earth for about 40 years and had never been able to walk. But then Jesus, or uh, excuse me, Peter and John healed this man through the name of Jesus. And mm. not only was this man able to eventually start walking, he, he, he got up immediately and started walking and jumping for joy. So not only was this, you know, a immediate healing, a complete healing, but it was done, you know, for a man who had no hope of ever walking. Wow. It wasn't someone who had been able to walk and then lost the ability and then slowly regained it, uh, as right. in someone who's in a car accident today, right? We, right. we see we see people who are, you know, in these kinds of situations where maybe their their leg is broken or or their back is hurt, and so they're not able to walk. But then through rehab and surgery and time, they're able to regain that ability. This, this was not the case in Acts chapter 3. This man had never been able to walk, and yet immediately he was up and running and jumping for joy and praising God because of the miracle that had just been performed. And we see that the Pharisees and the, and the other Jewish religious leaders, they understood that, and they recognized this. And so when they called Peter and John in for questioning, they, they knew that nothing that they said could refute the miracle. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 16, uh, the Pharisees said, What shall we do with these men? Uh, talking about Peter and John. For what a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Look at this. And we cannot deny it. Mm. You know, it when we look at these kind of faith healers or miracle workers that we see today, a lot of the times, and obviously this is a blanket statement, a, a general statement, but a lot of the times when they heal someone, it's of something that we can't see. It's of something that we can't verify. Everyone knew that lame man. He had been begging in front of the temple for years. Everyone recognized him and said, that's the same guy who's been here all his life. He's never been able to walk, and now he's jumping in the temple. 
they could not deny the truth about this miracle. And so I think that's an important distinction between the miracles of the apostles and the quote unquote miracles that we can see today. Yes. And when even skeptics of this Jesus movement uh, witnessed a miracle, even they were compelled to say, there's something to this. We cannot deny it. Um, yet today, if if there's somebody who is a skeptic of Christianity, pretty often if, if they're around somebody claiming to uh, be able to perform these miracles, they leave laughing even harder. Um, but generally, they're, they're also not even given that opportunity because so many so-called miracles are being performed today in private, closed religious meetings. They're not performed in front of high-traffic public buildings today. Uh, they are performed in closed religious meetings where people are already uh, disposed to believe in what is supposedly happening on stage to somebody who came in with chronic headaches or really bad back pain, who are usually um, filtered through some interview uh, interview process before these faith healings even begin. And I wonder why they have to go through an interview process before they're called on stage. And uh, we could probably guess as to why. And by the way, we're not attacking anybody personally. These are just things that we have witnessed and we're calling to question. If, if you're truly performing a miracle, do what the apostles were willing to do. Go in front of a high traffic building, find somebody that who, who could truly use a healing in the name of Jesus and convert the masses through truly performing miracles of raising the dead and healing the lame and, and the blind and, and the other sick people as well. Uh, and another thing that I've also encountered is this idea that every single Christian should have miraculous abilities. And usually if that's expanded upon, especially the gift of tongues. In fact, there was a time when I was exploring Christianity for the first time, and I had some friends in in, in a church that could supposedly perform faith healings, and they said it all begins with the gift of tongues. In fact, you cannot know that you are saved until God causes you to speak in tongues. Now, these people were my friends. They were not charlatans. They weren't in it for the money. They truly believed this. And so I believed them as well because I didn't know how to navigate the Bible. I didn't know how to test the spirits. I didn't know how to test all things. I simply believed them because I thought they had my best interests in mind. And so I tried to speak in tongues because they convinced me that every single person who believes on Jesus should be able to speak in tongues. And if you can't speak in tongues, then God has not proven his salvation in you. Yet we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and Paul asks a couple of rhetorical questions. He begins with verse 27. He says, now you are the body of Christ. In context, Paul has been talking about how every person, every Christian, is a member of the body of Christ and serves a different role, just like your physical body. Your hand is important to you, and so is your foot, but they don't perform the same role. Everybody is given different abilities, different gifts from God to help the kingdom. And he says in verse 27, you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. 
Here are his questions. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the best gifts? And yet I show you a more excellent way. And he goes on to show that love is the more excellent way. But he asks those questions, are all apostles? And we know the answer to that question. Otherwise, if everyone were an apostle, then there would be no rank in the church. There wouldn't be that order of things that Paul is dealing with in this context. And I like the way the New American Standard words the questions in verse 29 and, and 30. For instance, in verse 30, it would say, All do not have, have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? Because uh, it is kind of begging the question while answering the question. It's assuming the answer here. Of course, not all have gifts of the gift of tongues. And so in the first century, not every disciple had the gift of tongues. So why should we believe that in the 21st century when the scriptures give no indication of that at all? What do you think, Isaiah? Well, I think we, uh, something to mention here as well is when Paul mentions the uh, there in verse 30, when he asks the question, do all have the gift of speaking in tongues? The very next thing he says, do all have the gift of interpreting? So mm -hmm. I think that raises the point of when the early church spoke in tongues, especially in worship setting, there was someone who had to be there to interpret that. You know, yeah. Because when the Bible says these gift of tongues, it was these other languages. It was not just, you know, babble, right? It was not just saying random sounds. It was another language. And someone had to be there in order to interpret it. If not, there was no benefit for that. And he sp spends a good amount of time in Acts chapter 4, or excuse me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, talking about this. That's right. And in fact, in chapter 14 and verse 28, uh, or verse 27, he says, If any speak in a tongue, let there be one, uh, oh, sorry, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. And so what we see here then is the gift of tongues was a commandable gift, which again goes against what I was taught. When I asked my uh, very excited friends in this church what it was to speak in tongues, one thing that they would say is it's an uncontrollable gift, that you are overwhelmed and overcome by the Holy Spirit, and he controls your tongue he controls your actions, and you begin speaking in tongues beyond your control. Yet here, what we just read in 1 Corinthians 14, the Holy Spirit commands when to use the gift and when not to use the gift. And so therefore, that implies that the gift was controllable. Uh, there was no uncontrollable nature uh, of this gift. It was all something that the disciple was able to choose when to use it and when not to use it. And uh, members of Corinth, they abused this gift. And that's one of the reasons why Paul had to give this commandment is that they were uh, treating the church as a madhouse. And visitors were coming in thinking everybody's crazy here because everybody's speaking in a different language. But that does, we're kind of jumping forward and, and we should go back and ask, actually ask this question, what was the gift 
of tongues. What, what would you say, Isaiah, would be the best passage in Scripture we could go to to answer this question? What, what was the gift of tongues? I think we should go back to Acts chapter 2. Yeah, when we uh, when we see the the baptism of the Holy Spirit there in, uh, in Acts chapter two, and the apostles they began to speak in tongues, and we see why there in verse uh, <clears throat> verse six of Acts chapter two. Uh, and at the sound, the sound of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that sounded like a rushing wind. Uh, at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them, the apostles speak in his own language excuse me and they were amazed and astonished saying are not all these who are speaking galileans and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language parthians and medes and elamites and residents of mesopotamia judea and cappadocia pontius and asia Fig uh, figura and Pamphylia, egypt and the parts of libya belonging to cyrene and visitors from rome both jews and proselytes cretans and arabians we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So we see here uh, in Acts chapter 2, it is a it is Pentecost. It is a Jewish holiday, Jewish feast. And so a bunch of people were in Jerusalem where the temple was in order to partake of this holiday, partake of this feast. And they hear the apostles and those who are with them speaking, not inintelligibly, not words that they could not understand, but speaking in their own language, speaking in a tongue that they could understand, even though they were there were people from all those different regions that we just read there in verses nine through eleven. The gift of tongues was not to you know impress someone; it was not for the purpose of being saved. The gift of tongue was the gift of tongues was to teach and to edify those who did not speak your language. Amen. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And this is the passage I would have turned to as well. It explains it so well that these people heard uh, the mighty deeds of God being explained in their own language. And it also says not just their own language, but uh, verse 8, we hear in our own native tongue. Uh, it was the individual dialects, too. This was a true miraculous gift that these guys, these fishermen who had not gone to language school, they were able to speak not just other languages, but speak them so well that people from this region thought, he's speaking in my own accent, in my own dialect. He's using words that are very specific to this language. There's a time in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 6 through 12, where Paul uh, compares the gift of tongues with the ability to play an instrument. And uh, one of the time, one of the examples he gives is a bugle, for instance, on the battlefield. Prior to going to battle, the army trains together and they agree that certain sounds are they're played over the very loud battle in order to communicate something to the entire army. And so, uh, for example, if it was time to charge, well, there's the universal sound of charge, according to the cartoons, at least. Duh, 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 duh. And they would use a bugle on the battlefield because that was so much louder than the shouts of men. But if the bugle player came to the field and he just started playing his own music, something that nobody had agreed upon or uh, had some type of translation to, then nobody would know when it's time to charge. Nobody knows when it's time to retreat. Nobody knows when it's time to regroup because we haven't agreed upon whatever you're playing over there. And Paul makes the point that 
if you go into the assembly of Christians and you start speaking a language that no one can understand, then you're just as bad as that guy who goes onto the battlefield and plays his own music. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. You've got to have some meaning coming out of your mouth, which again refutes the idea that uh, the Holy Spirit is controlling your tongue and making you speak in languages that are not understood. It's very often called tongues of angels, but there's no benefit to the hearer if you're speaking something that nobody on earth can understand. All right. Um, one last thing that I would say about the gift of tongues that helps us understand this is um, in Matthew chapter 10, we've already cited this passage where Jesus sends the apostles out for the first time. He tells them to raise the dead and heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. One gift from God in that list that is not there is the gift of tongues. And that's because if you read in context, Jesus is sending these guys out to their own countrymen, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so a Jew who lived in Galilee would have had no problem at all communicating to another Jew in the region of Galilee or even Judea. They would have spoken the same languages. But later on, when Jesus sends the exact same men out to a totally different audience, Mark 16, verse 15, to the entire world, then if you read the rest of that passage in Mark 16, he does give them the gift of tongues, because this time they're going to every country, no longer just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The gift of tongues was, as Isaiah said, uh, the miraculous ability to speak the gospel in another language so that there would be no language barrier and the, the gospel could spread so rapidly throughout the first century that the apostles were able to confidently say that every person in the known world had the opportunity to hear the gospel, even in his own language. We've talked a lot about, you know, the Holy Spirit and, and, and the gift of tongues in the early church. And, and we've seen, you know, how it was used. We've seen the fact that it was used to edify and to teach. Uh, also for confirmation, right, when, when Cornelius and his household were, were baptized, they began to speak in tongues as well. And we've also looked at the fact in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that not every Christian back then had it. So that brings up the question, at least for me, is this still around? Do we have the gift of tongues today? Are there still some people who can perform this miraculous gift? That's a question specifically for you, Brother Lance. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm letting um, uh, Walker gave us a time update. Uh, we've been doing this for 54 minutes, and uh, I remember last week him saying that it cuts us off at an hour. So if we need to stop the recording and start it over, that would be fine with me. Sorry, Walker, this gives you some post-processing requirement. Uh, I'm going to mark that clip for you. Oh, no. Uh it's, it's all good. I, I was talking and I didn't even have myself unmuted. Um, but uh, we don't have to pause here. We can keep on going because I was just giving you all a time update. That way y'all all knew what the time was. Okay. So. so is it going to cut us off? Is it going to stop no. the recording? It shouldn't. Nope. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, we probably should wrap this up as, as well as we could, um, but maybe not so abruptly. Right. All right. So, I guess you'll cut this out, Walker, this little yep. conversation.
Yes, I will. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. So Isaiah, is this happening anymore? That's a really good question. And I think it would go the way of all the other things that we've been saying is, is it necessary anymore? Because the, the Bible is a book that's been translated more than any other book uh, available. And so I've been able to study the Bible in English. I've been able to study it in my own native tongue. I don't need uh, the ability to speak Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek in order to hear the gospel message. And I haven't needed anybody to speak the gospel with the gift of tongues in order for me to have that faith. Praise God, we don't need the gift of tongues anymore because we have the gospel in all the languages uh, that people can hear today. As far as I know, I'm sure there are a few languages where we would really like to see it translated into some of the smaller languages, but I guess the main languages are available today. We don't need the gift of tongues. And even before the first century was over, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, that love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. And whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And this is another thing that requires uh, a good hour or so to study. So I'm not going to pretend uh, that I could wrap it up in, in just one minute or so. But one thing that we can notice is at least during the first century, when the gift of tongues was clearly being used by the church, Paul looked forward to a time when tongues would cease. The gift of tongues would vanish away. And by the way, when Paul says, whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away, that's not general knowledge. That is, if you look in context, that is miraculous knowledge. That is the ability to know the mind of God before it's been revealed in his scriptures. And so these are all miraculous things. Uh, there's prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. And all of it had to do with knowing the will of God without having access to his completed or revealed scripture yet. And so Paul even looked forward to a time in the church where uh, faith hope and love would continue in the church, but there would no longer be the need for prophecies, tongues, or supernatural knowledge. And I believe we're living in that time now. We can have faith, hope, and love, but we don't need, we don't have prophecies, tongues, or knowledge. Otherwise, if we did, then the scriptures would not be complete, that the 66 books of the New Testament would not be sufficient. If somebody comes to you claiming to have supernatural knowledge or the gift of prophecy, then they are claiming that their word is just as binding and just as much as the word of God as the 66 books of the Bible are. And I've put that challenge towards somebody who claimed to have prophecy, and, and they were kind of taken aback. They realized, oh, I better be careful then if that's the case, because uh, the scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and if you're claiming to have the gift of prophecy today, then you have, you're claiming to have the ability that the apostles had when they wrote the scriptures and so on. And so uh, what do you think, Isaiah? I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, like, like you said, you know, the gift of tongues was for teaching people about the gospel in their own native language. And as you pointed out, we have 
Bibles in a lot of different languages today. And so we're able to go and study with someone, even if they don't speak the same languages as we do, because there are scriptures available for, like you said, at least the vast majority of languages so that people can read the Bible in their own language. People can can read the Bible in their own uh, in their own tongue. But of course, I think I think this brings up a, a question of, well, you know, if the Holy Spirit is not allowing us or we do not we not do not have the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit to be able to speak in tongues or to prophesy or things like that anymore, then is there a point to the Holy Spirit today? Is the Holy Spirit at work today? And if so, what is he doing if he's not giving us the ability to talk in tongues and prophesy and do all these other miraculous things such as healing? Mm. Again, you raise a really good question, and it's a good follow-up question um, because we do not want to be accused, uh, at least justifiably accused, of saying the Holy Spirit is not active today or that he is not involved in the church today. He certainly is. And uh, this is another topic that re- require probably hours of discussion and study to fully get our minds around. But just very briefly, if you were to compare 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, you would see how the Holy Spirit has, in the first century, manifested himself among the saints by giving them gifts. Some of them were miraculous gifts, but not all of them. We see, for instance, in Romans chapter 12, we've got uh, verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. And if you cross-reference this to 1 Corinthians 12, it's not just God in general who has given these gifts, but is but it is the Holy Spirit specifically who has given the gifts. Uh, We see in verse 8, exhortation, the ability to exhort brethren as a gift given by God. What about the one who leads? Yes, we see that. The one who shows mercy. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. And so all of the uh, interpersonal relationships we have with members of the church and the ability to lead, the ability to encourage or give That is something the Holy Spirit has given to the individual members of the church. And if you were to read Romans chapter 8, you would read Paul saying that if you do not have the Holy Spirit in you or dwelling in you, then you are not adopted into the family of God. But because you are a child of God, the Holy Spirit cries out within our hearts, Abba, Father. If you are a child of God, that is, spiritually speaking, we're all children of God, that is, through Adam. Paul makes that point in Acts chapter 17 when speaking to people who didn't even believe in Jesus. But if we're going to be a child of God through spiritual things, through the blood of Jesus, then that must mean we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, according to Romans 8. And one of the most famous passages of all Scripture is Romans 8 verse 28, that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, and to those who are called according to his purpose. But the previous two verses say this. This is Romans 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. 
In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that the Spirit of God knows the mind of God. Even so, your personal spirit knows what your mind is thinking. And now uh, the apostle says that the Holy Spirit who knows the mind of God, he also knows your mind because he is in you as well. So he is the Spirit who searches the hearts, and the Holy Spirit knows what your heart is dealing with. And when you pray and you don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit is there, according to this passage, to help you when you pray. Uh, he doesn't pray for you, but he helps you when you pray. When, all of these things that we're talking about would be considered gifts of God. We use the word talent very often because that is the English vernacular, and it probably goes back to the parable of the talents that Jesus teaches in the New Testament. Uh, I believe that's Matthew 25. But be careful with that word talent, because actually when Jesus used that word, he was talking about uh, a sum of money, not actually what we think of when we think of talents. The more scriptural word would be gift. But since some gifts were miraculous gifts, we might feel like we should refrain from using the word gift in the church today, but certainly not. And it comes from the Greek word charis, which is the root for charismatic, isn't it? And so you might be talking to a group of Christians who like using labels, and they talk about this church being that, and that church over there is charismatic. But if we truly are the children of God, spiritually speaking, are we not all charismatic in that we've been given gifts from God? Even though we're not performing miraculous gifts, we should be charismatic in that sense that we display the gifts of the Holy Spirit through our giving, our exhortation, our encouragement, our leading of God's people uh, toward Jesus, and, and even the lost. Uh, we are all priests in the spiritual house of God, according to 1 Peter 2, and we have these gifts to offer to him, making spiritual sacrifices. And so the Holy Spirit does a lot for us today, and it's the immature person who longs for miraculous gifts and abilities, but it is the person Paul would refer to as complete or perfect or mature who knows that the love of God is sufficient. We don't need to see miraculous gifts in order to have faith in him. What do you think? I think you hit the nail right on the head, Brother Lance. <laughs> Like you said, you know, and as we mentioned already in this episode, when you are baptized in water, fully immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, not only do you receive forgiveness from those sins, but you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. But the, again, and, and as you pointed out, there are other gifts of the Holy Spirit besides miraculous gifts. You don't have to be a prophet. You don't have to be a healer. You don't have to be able to speak in tongues. You can love. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. You can be merciful. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. You can be a leader. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And you know, we see these, especially when you look at the church today, or at least you should be able to. Obviously, not every church is able to, to do this. Not every church is, is equipped to do all of these things, but, you know, you should be able to walk into a church, any, any church today, and be able to see people with the gift of leadership, be able to get, see the people with the gift of teaching, be able to see the people with the gift of generosity, 
or passion or love or mercy. And those, you know, individual characteristics of those individual people come together to form that cohesive unit, that body of Christ that we talked about earlier. But I think it's also important for us to remember the fact that not only does the Holy Spirit dwell inside of us today and give us these gifts and give us these abilities of love and mercy and generosity and leadership, but we also see and we also know the fact that the Holy Spirit helped write the scriptures that we read from and learn from and are encouraged from today. Mm. Yeah, certainly. Now, uh, speaking on what you just said, uh, I, I feel like we should elaborate and clarify just a little bit is uh, some people might be really concerned about the way we're saying certain things because it's not what we would normally say in a conservative conversation or anything like that. But we are trying to use Bible words in Bible ways. And when we see the Holy Spirit giving miraculous gifts to Christians in the first century, we see him giving uh, then the gift of healing, for instance. But even with the gift of healing or the gift of tongues, there were instructions that went along with that. And so even though it was a miraculous gift, it was still in the hands, I guess, pardon the pun, of the Christian how to use it, when to use it. And if he did that uh, in a selfish way or uh, a way that did not honor and glorify God, then he would be rebuked. He had control over that gift. And the same thing would be for the non-miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, like faith and encouragement and giving, that we see in Romans chapter 12, verse 8, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality. Uh, and he goes on with the other gifts as well. And so there are instructions, even though the Holy Spirit might have given you the gift of leading or giving, that doesn't mean that you're fully equipped to use it today. No, that is something that you personally need to work on. You need to use this gift in a way that will honor and glorify God, even though it's something that God has given you to do. That doesn't mean that you are fully equipped and you just lose control of your body so the Holy Spirit can then control your body. No, you have the ability and the gift. Use it the way that you know would honor and glorify God. And Thank you for catching that, Brother Lance. Yeah, no problem. And I, I've gone back and forth where, whether or not I should mention this. I'll mention this for the sake of the few listeners who might be concerned right now about Acts 2 and verse 38. I don't want to confuse the audience who came to truly learn today, but there are those who might come to this uh, podcast with their minds kind of already made up and, and very concerned about what we said about Acts 2.38. I am aware that there are those who believe very strongly that the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 verse 38 was limited to only the first century honest, uh, audience, and it was talking only about miraculous gifts. Look, if, if someone believes the gift of the Holy Spirit is for 21st century Christians today, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that person believes that 21st century Christians are receiving miraculous gifts. I just wanted to say that. I hope it didn't confuse uh, those who, who came to truly soak up the scriptures, but that was for those who already have studied this and have come to the conclusion that gift of the Holy Spirit was actually only a first century thing. But if I may, I'd, se I'd segue into Ephesians 5 and verse 18. I want you to notice um, this parallel between Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. 
In fact, a lot of people have looked at Ephesians and Colossians and called them sister letters, where Ephesians is a, is a letter about the church of the Christ, and Colossians is about the Christ of the church. In Ephesians 5 verse 18, Paul says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. There are times in the book of Acts that people were filled with the Holy Spirit and they had nothing to do with it. But here, the Apostle Paul commands the Christians to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. How can that be uh, fulfilled? Well, if you compare that with what he says similarly in Colossians 3, he says, this is verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you've got the time later on today, take these two passages, that is Ephesians 5 verses 18 through 21, and Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17, and you'll find a lot of parallels. And one of the parallels is this. Be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18, and let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, Colossians 3, 16. So at least one way of understanding that the Holy Spirit is in you is being filled with the Word of God letting the Word of God dwell in you. And it's not just a mental thing, it's not just an academic thing, but it's a heart thing as well. He uses the word richly. He says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. And so the more you allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly, that you live it out, that you teach it to others, from a heart of humility, you are manifesting the fact that the Spirit of God dwells in you, or that you are filled with the Spirit, at least in a, an Ephesians 5.18 way. I think it's important to note that we're also called to be uh, people who are walking in the Spirit, right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're called to be people who are not only living out the things that the Spirit has taught us in the Scriptures, but be the people, kind of the kind of people who are thankful, be the kind of people who are joyful, and yeah. just be be the kind of people that the Holy Spirit can be seen in. Yes, um, Galatians five verses sixteen through twenty six is another passage to meditate on. Uh, in that passage, Paul says, "Walk in the Spirit." walk with the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, live in the Spirit. He also talks about the fruit of the Spirit that the Christian would certainly bear, you know, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so, yeah, take that passage to heart, Galatians 5, verse 16, which begins with, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. He ends the passage in verse 25, if we live 
in the Spirit. Let us also walk in the Spirit. I believe the ESV puts it this way, to keep in step with the Spirit. I appreciate you bringing that up, Isaiah. Yeah, of course, brother. And and we appreciate you and all the time that you've spent not only pouring into us and, and pouring into this episode, but just in general. Uh, obviously, you've spent a, a lot of years in service to the Lord and, and all over the world. And we're so thankful for you taking the time out of your busy schedule to not only drive up to Tennessee to record the first part of this series, but to sit down and record this second episode with us virtually. Uh, we're so thankful for you and, and for the fact that we got to, to meet you and to, to learn from you and to continue to, to be blessed by you. Uh, and again, we want to encourage you guys at home to check out Lance's stuff. Uh, he has Topical Bible Studies on YouTube. You can go to YouTube, search up Topical Bible Studies. He's got a lot of great material there. Uh, if you want to go to uh, LanceMosierBooks.com, we'll have that link included as well for anyone to go and check out his works, uh, not just the one on the Holy Spirit and miracles, but the other one, including one that's almost a biography of how he came to be a Christian, which is something that he talked about a little bit on this episode. And we're, again, we're thankful for that and, and for his experiences that, that led him to the gospel. Is there anything else that we need to, to mention before we go ahead and wrap up the episode, guys? All glory to God. Thank you guys for having me. This has been a blessing. And uh, Isaiah, do you want to mention the ways that we can that people can contact us? Absolutely. Uh, you know, we we want to be reachable to you guys. We want to be available to you guys, especially if you have any questions or any concerns that you may have about this episode or something else in the scriptures that you may not be able to understand, or or something that we said in another episode that you uh, didn't understand. So we would love to be able to reach out to you, or, uh, con or if you contact us, we we would love to talk to you about the scriptures, about Christ. We have an Instagram page, T-T-E-O-J underscore podcast. Uh, there's a Twitter by that same name. We have a Facebook page, uh, Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast. We have a, an email, info at T-T-E-O-J dot com. Uh, we also have a phone number. Walker, if you could give that for us, please. 731-439-9671. Thank you, brother. So, there's a lot of different ways that you can reach out to us. And again, we'd love to sit down and talk with you about any of these things. Uh, and again, Brother Lance, we're so thankful for you and for your, your time and your dedication to the Lord. And if there's nothing else that needs to be said, we're going to go ahead and close the episode off in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for all the blessings that you have given us. Lord, we know that even though this the study had some had some depth that there's still a lot of things out there that could be discovered. And there's also a lot of things out there that you have not revealed to us. Help us Lord to search for the answers, but also be willing to accept the fact that there are some things that we don't need to know. Uh, Lord, we're so thankful for you, for your son and for the Holy spirit, for the blessings that they provide to us. We're so thankful Lord for all the things that have been given to us especially for the scriptures, for the, the people around us, and for the gifts inside of us that we can use to point people to you. Help us, Lord, as we go about our days to keep our focus on you, and to meditate on your word, and to grow closer to you. Thank you, Lord, again, for sending your son to die on the cross, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.